0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ in His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org.
1: Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Peter 5, 1-11. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world and after you've suffered a little while the god of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in christ will himself restore confirm strengthen and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever amen this is the word of the lord praise be to christ
0: much great job hey it's good to worship god together this morning. My name is Josiah. I serve here as our director of faith and work ministry. And today we are wrapping up our series in First Peter, A New Life. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to encourage you with God's word. And this has been a really impactful series for us as we've seen how God's grace in Jesus Christ is powerful to transform us. Uh, in every area of our lives, it provides us with a steadfast hope and suffering. It allows the church to flourish as a community on mission, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. And so today we're going to talk about the countercultural role of a Christian leader and also circle back to that theme of where we can find hope in the midst of troubling and challenging times in our own lives as, as people who would look to Jesus for what we need. And you know, it's on my mind this morning, that as we come together before God's word, there is truth for us in here. There's timeless truth that is universal. And I also want to say this morning, as we gather here, God knows each of our hearts. And as we look to his word together, as much as this word is timeless and universal, it's also very personal to each of us. And the Holy Spirit is in us and among us, each of us who would put our hope in Jesus Christ. And This morning, I want to pray that God would talk to us and get our attention if there's an area of our own lives where we need to be encouraged, where we need to see what is good, see what is true, or maybe even be challenged or stirred up to action. So why don't I pray for us and we'll get right into it. Would you join me? Father, we thank you that as we come together this morning as a community that uh, we're able to just take part in a a community where we can see your presence among us through those who would bring their children before you as an act of faithfulness and response to your presence in their lives. We thank you for the opportunity to hear your word, to sing praises to you, and we invite your spirit to speak to us now in our own hearts. God, some of us, uh, we're here and just beginning to journey in faith and thinking about truth, maybe even for the first time. There are others who have been on this journey for a long time, and we pray that you would meet us right where we are with the words you'd have for us today. We ask this together in Jesus' name, Amen. A 2023 article from the Business and Entrepreneurship Research website, com shared about an extensive research study analyzing characteristics of the world's most effective leaders. I think it's profoundly related to what we're talking about today. Listen to this. The article begins Leadership was once called by historian James McGregor Burns one of the most observed and least understood phenomena on earth. But listen to this. Given the results of recent research, this no longer appears to be the case. Leadership consultants Jack Zenger and Joseph Folkman published the results of a study that polled over 300,000 business leaders, ranking the top four competencies from a list of 16 key leadership characteristics. And so after working through the results, this is the list they came up with. These are what 300,000 business leaders would say are the top five most important leadership skills for success. I'll give you this, this rundown of the top five. Coming in at number five, a successful leader communicates powerfully and prolifically. Number four, they drive for results. Number three, they solve problems and analyze issues Number two, they display high integrity and honesty. And number one, a successful leader, based on the opinions of 300 business leaders, is that a leader inspires and motivates others. Any of those a surprise to you? I would imagine you'd probably say no. If you're anything like the sample size of 300,000 people, you'd probably agree that those characteristics are important for a leader to possess. And I share this because in the reading we heard just a moment ago, Peter, he names a single attribute of Christian character that is absolutely critical for Christian leaders to possess and grow in if we're going to thrive in life and leadership with the help of the Holy Spirit. If we want to steward well the gifts and opportunities that God has given us to make an impact that lasts towards eternity— Peter names this singular attribute that we must cultivate and grow in if we want to invest in others in a way that matters. And what is true for you and I is that if we possess this characteristic, if we are growing in it, it can transform our relationships and the influence that we'll have on others. But what's also true is that if we are deficient in this characteristic, it seems that pretty much everyone else can see that except us. Everyone else will notice it. There's no replacement for it. It can't be faked or manufactured. There's no degree you can take to earn it. Do you know what this characteristic is based on the passage, the teaching we just heard? Humility. This summer in the National Institute for Faith and Work, we're leading a study on Friday mornings by the book, Leading with a Limp. I heard our pastor, Scott Sauls, refer to this before, and I found it to be really helpful. It's by a man named Dan Allender who's a therapist by background, and this book, it's an apologetic of sorts for what it looks like to be a Christian leader in a way that runs counter to the ways of our culture and thinking about what an effective leader looks like, whether that's in your family, your church, an organization that you would lead, your company. And so early in this book, Allender, he confronts the reader with this provocative question about what are the presuppositions you and I would bring to when we think about What an effective leader should look like. Listen to this. He writes What should we require of a pastoral candidate, a corporate CFO, or even a representative to the state legislature? What I'm about to write is ridiculous. It won't stand in the public and secular realms. It possibly happens in faith based contexts, but it's far from the norm. Yet this is the model offered by most of God's leaders in the Bible. Here's what he says. We should bless men and women who have done their level best to escape leadership, but who have been compelled to return and put their hand on the tiller. We should expect everyone who remains in formal leadership to experience repeated bouts of flight, doubt, surrender, and return. And why would this be God's plan, he writes? Why does God love the reluctant leader? Here's one reason. The reluctant leader is not easily seduced by power, pride, or ambition. Like I said, isn't that a countercultural perspective to what we believe an effective leader should look like? And I think Allender's words with that statement you just heard, they match up with Peter's teaching for you and I today in a profound way. So what I'd like for us to do is as we look at this text, I want to work through it in two chunks with two axioms of faith, two statements of truth about the way that life and faith work in light of God's grace that he's revealed to us through his son Jesus. Two axioms of faith that emerge in the passage. First one's about Christian leadership, second's about the Christian hope in suffering. And I don't know if you hear those two things together and think, man, that's a random pair. We're talking about leadership and hope and suffering. Uh, First of all, let me say this wasn't my idea. Peter's the one who ties these two together. And I think by the time we get to the end, you'll see that really there is a profound connection as we see humility really at the center of the Christian life through them all. If you're a note taker, these two statements are on the back of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. But the first statement is this. It's that effective Christian leaders are people who continually focus on living as faithful followers of Christ. So this is incredibly simple, but also deeply transformative if we can really live it out consistently. If you want to be a good leader, priority number one is being a good follower of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever taken part in one of these conversations, but there's this age-old debate where if you're having a conversation, someone will say, you know what? Everyone is a leader. We're all leaders in different areas of influence. And then someone else in the conversation will inevitably say, well, if everyone's a leader, who is there left to follow? Because we're all just leading our own direction. Someone's got to be a follower, right? Have you ever taken part in one of those conversations? I wonder where you would land on that. As I've thought about this, I really believe that each person is actually both a follower and a leader right? We just switch hats depending on our context and situation. And, and so everyone is both a leader and a follower. It's just that our roles will shift at different times. And I think that what Peter would say in light of today's teaching is that if you want to be an effective Christian leader, your first priority is being a humble Christian follower. This is what he draws out in the first six verses of this passage. Looking at verse 1, if you're following along, you can see how Peter frames this. It's a peer-to-peer consult of sorts as it relates to leadership in the church. He writes, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and witness of Christ's sufferings who will also share in the glory to be revealed. And so he identifies with these people personally, both in his role as well as in their shared experience. And then he goes on here to coach them up on these areas to be mindful about pursuing growth. You know, one Bible commentator points out this is actually one of only two places in the entire New Testament where leaders in the church, these elders, are specifically addressed. Typically, people who fulfilled this role were more advanced in age. They were seasoned in faith. And so with the context of this passage, actually, I think you and I receive a helpful reminder in this, that we're never out of room to grow in the Christian life, right? We never outgrow our need to become more like Jesus as the Holy Spirit works in us and inside of us that we could grow in our own maturity. And so if Jesus is the standard on this side of eternity, you and I always have room to grow. If you're a leader in the church, if you're a senior pastor, if you're a Bible study reader, we're on equal ground and being able to have room to grow into maturity in Jesus Christ. And so you and I, we do well to always maintain a teachable spirit, no matter how seasoned Or experienced we are. And I don't know about you, but I have to be honest and admit there are definitely moments I can look back on my own journey and see that I have failed at moments to take instruction or feedback well. There are times when someone has tried to help me grow and I've taken it as a a word of criticism that I'm deficient through my own insecurity, that the ways they're seeking to help me are actually a poke at something that I feel insecure about myself. And certainly the the tone of a person's feedback and instruction is pretty critical for us to receive that well, right? But, you know, as time's gone on, I've been convicted both by the words of people who really care about me, as well as the conviction of the Holy Spirit in my own heart, that it's a real limiter to our growth when we fail to receive instruction and feedback well. There's an author named Sheila Heen, and a mindset I've tried to adopt is summarized well by this statement of hers. She says that one of the best gifts someone can give me is good feedback. One of the best gifts someone can give me is good feedback. I think you and I do well to remain teachable and desire that gift from others, even when it might be hard for us to receive initially, is is a way that you and I, as fellow members of the body of Christ can help one another grow and and grow into maturity in our faith and service that's exactly what Peter is doing here in this passage let's listen to his words in verse two as he dials this in a little more specifically he tells these elders shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight not under compulsion but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you. This word shepherd, Peter uses it here as a verb. And so what he's emphasizing is this action of cultivating relationship and personal connection of leaders in the church with their people. Just as a shepherd guides and protects and feeds their sheep, so are leaders in the church to be acutely aware of the needs of their people and and to meet them through teaching, guiding, and providing care accordingly. These are essential tasks of church leadership. They're not an add-on. They're not an extra. This is what leadership is about. And I want to say something I'm really proud of about our church is this is something our elders here at Christ Prez really own. I don't know if you've received one of these emails, but just a few weeks ago, my wife and I got an email from Spencer Westcott, the elder here at Christ Prez, who's been assigned to care for us. And if you're a member of this church, you probably received a similar email from an elder here because our leadership, they've created a plan and a structure to help us know that they're behind us, they're here for us, and they want to help us navigate the challenges we face in life and faith. If you're not a member, that's actually a reason to become one. It's a real gift to be able to be known and supported in this kind of community. Our church leadership take shepherding seriously. And this is an area we're always trying to grow in, caring for the flock of God among us. And, and so Peter, he shares that positive way to pursue growth here, but he also draws out some counter examples. If you're looking at verses two and three, here's some pitfalls for Christian leaders to avoid. He says godly leaders aren't driven by a hunger for power. They're not driven by a sense of burden that they've got to do something they don't want to do. They're not motivated by selfish gain, whether that's through finance or prestige. Like we'd all be pretty confused and embarrassed, right? If we found out that Pastor Todd had, sought, had started a ministry on the side, blessing prayer hankies on the Home Shopping Network so he could buy better season tickets for Ole Miss. Like we'd be like, P- Pastor Todd, I'm not sure your heart's in the right place. Peter, he, he calls leaders to pursue things for the right reasons. If you do see Pastor Todd on Home Shopping Network, I wanna know why you're watching Home Shopping Network. <laughs> so Peter, what what did his instructions here boil down to? What he's saying kind of comes across as this Ronald Reagan-esque expression of ask not what what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He essentially says, Christian leaders are people who focus on how they can serve in response to how Jesus has served us. Christian leaders think about what they can give, not what they can get. And it's because of what Jesus has given to us. That is what we're called to pursue leadership with that kind of mindset. We don't focus on gaining power or status or prestige, we don't focus on gaining comfort or worldly influence, but serving in response to how Jesus Christ has served us. Before we go any further, I want to go back to that question of who is a leader? Again, I love the way that Dan Allender puts this in that book, Leading with a Limp. This has just been on my mind recently. Received these words. He says, a leader is anyone who has someone else following her. If anyone looks to you for wisdom, ah, oh, this gets me. It's good. A leader is anyone who has someone else following her. If anyone looks to you for wisdom, counsel, or direction, then you are a leader. If there's one little girl who looks at you and says, Mommy, you're a leader. If there are 14 high-energy boys holding aluminum weapons and screaming that they want to be first to hit the ball that rests on a rubber T frame, then you're a leader. It only takes one child grabbing your finger with a small, sometimes trembling hand to signify that you're a leader. And from your child's birth to the day you pass from the earth, you will continue to make life-shaping decisions as a parent, And of course, it's not just parents who lead with such power and influence. Anyone who wrestles with an uncertain future on behalf of others, anyone who uses her gifts, talent, and skills to influence the direction of others for a greater good is a leader. Did you hear that? If you're here this morning and God has convicted you that you're a person who is broken and lost on your own— and your only hope for a life that makes sense in terms of eternity and right relationship with God, if your only hope is Jesus and you've, you've found a sense of peace in what he's done through his death on the cross on your behalf and his resurrection from the grave, if God's convicted you of your need for a savior and turned you to hope in him, you can know that he has given you gifts and abilities and influence to invest them in others. God has made you for good works that he's planned in advance for you to do he's called you and I to serve as leaders by service by investing ourselves in others through thinking about not what we can get through the way that we would navigate this life but what we can give by investing in others in their own journey with Christ we do this as a response of gratitude for the gospel my friends we're people who need God's grace deeply As I read that list, that that leaders aren't people who seek to gain power, status, or comfort, or worldly influence. If we want to be Christian leaders, first step is saying, you know what, sometimes I actually do want those things. Like, I want those things, and I want you to think well of me, and I I'm mixed in my own motivations, right? We're broken people whose only hope is God's grace. And so first step for us to be Christian leaders who can invest in others in a way that's going to make an impact of eternity is owning our own brokenness and looking solely to Jesus for what we need to be people who can truly serve. And when we do that, we find that our perspective and, and the way that we would engage with others is changed entirely, Again, this first axiom of faith effective Christian leadership is about continually living as faithful followers of Jesus Christ. That's about humility in the gospel, continually returning to our need for God's grace and setting our hearts on what He's done for us as the foundation of our leadership. Because Jesus, He's our perfect example, and He's also our power to live this out. And Jesus, He said, I'm the good shepherd if we want to live as shepherds ourselves in the places that we've been entrusted with leadership, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I give my life for the sheep. My sheep, I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. I lay my life down for the sheep. Jesus is our perfect example as well as our hope to actually live this out. If we try and be godly leaders on our own, that, that works for me for about half a morning uh, sometimes less if someone forgot to made, make the coffee, but if we want to lead in a self-giving, others-first, sacrificial way, that begins with remembering that we as shepherds have a chief shepherd who's over us, and that is Jesus Christ. You know, pastor and author Oswald Sanders says this. He says, only once in all of the recorded words of Jesus did he announce that he wanted to provide an example for his people. And you know what he did then? He washed their feet. The most powerful leader who ever lived showed his greatness not in lifting himself, himself up, but in kneeling down to be the servant of all. And just like Peter says in verse 5, you and I, we want to be people who would clove ourselves with that kind of committed community. We as a community, part of me, want to be people who can put on humility and mirror that character attribute of Jesus. That as we would put on humility, that's what others would see on us through the way that we ourselves would lead. So that's the first axiom. Let's move to number 2 looking at the latter part of this passage. And this is where Peter he says that the same gospel-oriented humility that enables Christians to thrive in leadership, this is what also gives us an anchor of hope and suffering. Again, leadership and suffering. This seems like a bit of an odd pair, but Peter, he ties the two together looking at the centrality of humility to the Christian life. And so as it relates to suffering, suffering brings us face to face with the truth that you and I live in a world that is broken where evil is present. And as much as we might like to think that life is under our control, it's suffering that shows us that that is certainly not the case. It makes us acutely aware of those realities and, When you and I suffer, when we deal with pain in the present, it's an incredibly difficult thing. There's no part of me that wants to glaze over that. The pain that we experience in a broken world is is real, and it can be heartbreaking. But where Peter, he really gives the most focus here, is talking about the side effect of suffering, and that as we look towards the future, it can also cause us to live with anxiety as we anticipate what might come down the road. And here, what Peter does is he instructs us that we find hope not through turning inward over what we can control or sustain, but through actually humbling ourselves and admitting that we don't have it altogether. through turning to the Lord and confessing that we don't have it within our internal resources to sustain ourselves or control what's ahead of us. Listen, in verse seven, he writes these words, cast your anxieties on God for he cares for you. It's this sort of upside down statement about the way that we find hope. We find hope through acknowledging that we're not in control. We find hope through confessing that we can't carry the weight of our anxieties on our own. We need hope from outside. And, and so this is what we find When we acknowledge those hard truths, when we acknowledge those hard truths that we don't have it together, that we're not in control, that the brokenness of this world is more than we can shoulder ourselves. When we confess those realities and humble ourselves by turning towards God, casting our anxieties from him, we begin to experience that truth of scripture that Paul talks about in Philippians chapter four, that God quiets our hearts with a peace that passes our own understanding. You know, a pastor, a friend of mine, I've heard him share on a number of occasions that often when he's feeling anxious, he has to remind himself of this truth that all of the things that he cares about, all the things that he's concerned about, his family, his church, his marriage, his friendships, you know what? At the end of the day, God cares about those things more than you and I do. God cares about your family, your future, your hopes, the ways that you want to serve him. God cares about those things more than you do. And so as much as you might want to control, probably the most wise thing you can do is actually to hand them over to the one who truly does control them, who is fully wise, who's fully good, and is sovereign over our lives. We can turn them over to here, over, we can turn them over to God in a really practical way that Peter names here through casting our anxieties on God. What he's talking about is prayer. Prayer. Prayer is a practical strategy for you and I to be able to turn towards God with the burdens of our hearts and to be able to hand them to Him as the one who's truly powerful to change things. God hears our prayers, God honors our prayers. And like I said, when we do turn towards God in prayer, He quiets our own spirits with a peace that passes understanding. And I want to tell you, there have been some circumstances that have been on my mind and in my heart recently where I've found myself going down that road of worry and and just thinking about the variables that I can control and feeling that weight. And it's been on my heart. God has a way of keeping you accountable when you preach that if you're not living this out, you're not going to be any good to anybody else. And I want to tell you, as I've turned towards God in prayer, he really has quieted those fears as I've casted my anxieties that I can't help is I've casted those anxieties on him. But what you and I can help is what we do with our anxiety. Will we shoulder it ourselves or will we hand it to the one who's actually powerful to carry them? You know, even though I know I should be praying, I want to be honest and admit there are times when I don't pray, even though I know that I should. Can anybody else relate to that? Even though I know that prayer is transformative, there are times when I pray as a last resort more so than a first response why do you think it is that we do that for me i think it's typically my own pride and my desire to be self-sufficient and this can show up in different areas of my life this one's really silly but one of the narratives i can be prideful about and kind of get down on myself about when i'm not at my best is that i am not very handy And I can get down on myself about that when I'm doing home projects. I can just tell myself, man, I really stink at home projects. And uh, except for unclogging, unclogging garbage disposals, I'm really good at unclogging garbage disposals. And if this whole ministry thing doesn't work out, that is my backup plan. But when I'm doing a home project and I'm just blowing it, I don't watch a YouTube video or call a friend. What I do is I go to my wife and I tell her how angry I am and how bad I stink at home projects. It's the only reasonable thing to do, right? And so not long ago, I was trying to install a baby gate. And uh, as you'd imagine, I tried multiple times with no success. Baby gates are unreasonably difficult to install. And so it just so happened that my wife and I had friends coming to visit, and my buddy is super handy, and he is one of my best friends. But when my wife told me, hey, you should get your friend to help you with the baby gate, how do you think that went over? (laughs) Uh, I initially refused and was offended that that question was even asked. We had a great visit with our friends and I didn't ask for help until the baby gate when I fin- with the baby gate until the very end of the visit where I finally got over my ego and I asked my friend to help. And you know what? We got the gate installed and believe it or not, I actually had a great time with my friend installing that baby gate. And we accomplished the task and it even built our relationship um, just because I'm such a super humble person, right? And I asked my friend to help me install the baby gate. I'm really teachable, guys. I almost missed out on all of that because of my own pride. I almost missed out on all of it because I was too prideful to ask for help. And sadly, there are times in my Christian life where I have missed out on building my relationship with God because I am too darn prideful that I want to shoulder my own burdens myself. I don't want to live that way. I don't want you to live that way. May we be people who gain the wisdom of God's word and rather than learning the same lessons over and over again through the school of hard knocks, may we learn through the wisdom of God's word and be people who instead of shouldering our own burdens would hand them to the one who's actually powerful to carry them. When we do that, when we pray, we find peace and surprisingly, like I said, the whole experience, it builds our relationship with God. It's this counterintuitive blessing that comes through recognizing our own weakness, through owning our pride. God blesses us through that in a counterintuitive way by pointing us to the the greatness and the strength of Jesus. Listen to this quote. I love how C.S. Lewis expresses this in Mere Christianity. He writes God forbids pride because he wants you to know him, he wants to give you himself. And he and you are two things of such a kind that if you really get into any kind of touch with him, you will, in fact, be humble delightedly humble, feeling the infinite relief of having for once got rid of all the silly nonsense about your own dignity, which he has made you restless. Uh, Pardon me, your own dignity, which has made you restless and unhappy your whole life, right? It's our pride that actually holds us back for knowing the goodness of God and the complete ability of Jesus to be our sustainer and provider. I love it. That's deeply freeing. I want to encourage you, if you're looking for a practice of prayer to help you with this, uh, a structure that could be a benefit to you in praying in your own life, I wanna recommend an app to you. There's a ancient prayer tradition that actually comes from a contemplative Christian background called the Prayer of Examine, And there is an app called Examine, E-X-A-M-E-N, that has a variety of these prayer routines that I have found to be incredibly helpful. It asks you questions of self-reflection and leads you to turn to God with them in prayer. You can download that for free, super helpful. I like to do that towards the end of the day i found it deeply meaningful. Even better than doing that on your own would be to commit with a friend or a family member to practicing that prayer uh, routine with the two of you. And, you know, you could decide a number of times you want to do it each week, circle back on the weekend, maybe write down something that stood out to you and just share those with one another. I think that could be deeply meaningful. Our habits in prayer truly do pay dividends in our relationship with Christ. You know, these are some very important lessons that we've looked at today. The reality that Peter lays out for us is that we live in a world that God has created good but has fallen in sin and though evil is present and we'll have pain and struggles in this life, we're never people without hope because of what Jesus has done in conquering sin and death. We know the one who's in the business of redeeming all things and we can trust that Jesus will finish that project that he's initiated. One day he'll return and complete it. And so Peter, he concludes his encouragement to these friends saying, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.